daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said the European Commission will soon assess Ukrainian legislation for compliance with EU laws, the first step to Ukraine's EU membership talks. China regulates non-bank payment institutions. U.S. government report shows the number of homeless people in the country has increased by 12% to a record high. Welcome to World Today, a news program with a different perspective. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said the European Commission will soon assess Ukrainian legislation for compliance with EU laws, the first step to Ukraine's EU membership talks. In his nightly video address over the weekend, Zelensky said a framework for EU accession talks is expected in spring. European Union leaders have recently agreed to open membership accession negotiations with Ukraine and Moldova. However, the decision bypassed Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban's objections by getting him to leave the room. Orban also vetoed a proposed 50 billion euro allocation from the EU budget to Ukraine. Now, for more, we're joined by Kamal Makidi Aliyev. He is affiliated researcher at Raoul Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Sweden. Kamal, thanks for joining us again. It's good to have you back on the show. Thank you very much for having me again. Now, now, first up, um, Viktor Orban later announced on social media platform X that Hungary did not wish to participate in the bad decisions and stayed away from the decision of the European Union. I mean, how should we understand Orban's position on the issue of Ukraine's accession to the EU in the first place? Well, Orban's position is that the decision to continue um, uh, helping Ukraine and asking it to accede the the European Union in the present situation um, is a decision that uh, will hurt the European Union in the end. Orban disagrees with the position of the EU EU leadership uh, that this is the good time to um, ask the Ukraine to start the talks about the membership. Now, uh, this decision to start these talks uh, was arrived at the cost of, uh, as we talked earlier, getting Orban to leave the room. I mean, how how should we understand the situation? It was a pre-agreed situation, but uh, why was, you know, this agreement was in place in the first place? I think this is because uh, the Orban's position was basically derailing this EU decision because there is need to be a consensus between all the EU member states. And as a representative of Hungary, Orban's uh, disagreement with the decision would uh, derail uh, the decision. Uh, as a- so instead of uh, uh, instead of uh, using the veto, Orban um, agreed not to be present at the decision-making meeting, and thus. Uh, while the Orban would not participate in, the, in taking the decision, he would not veto it. What will both the European Union and Viktor Orban get from this uh, kind of reticent agreement? Well, Orban doesn't have to veto the the decision of the European Union to start mm-hmm. membership talks, and thus would not uh, participate in the decision. But the European Union then um, doesn't have to deal with the Hungary's veto for the decision because all the decisions will have to be taken by the consensus. So it's a negotiated solution, so not to derail the decision. Mm. Well, uh, Ukrainian Prime Minister said on Friday that Ukraine needs to implement 2,700-plus legal acts for becoming a member of the European Union. Why does Ukraine need to do that uh, in the first place, and how do you see the process going forward? That is needed for the Ukraine to synchronize its legislative base, um, basically all its laws in sync with the European Union, a very vast uh, legislation. Because European Union is based on uh, meticulous um, 
legislation that ties all the countries together and synchronizes many processes between them to facilitate uh, the um, work of the European Union as a single unity. So because of that, Ukraine will need to get on board for the years that the European Union was developing and basically um, really implement and uh, ratify 2,700 legal acts, uh, approximately, probably, it's an approximation, mm. uh, to be able to get on board with uh, with other uh, members of the European Union. Mm. How long do you think that will take place? And how do you see, you know, the whole process being completed? This is this is a very long process, of course, mm. because some of the acts are technical and can be uh, ratified and can be implemented or um, have a force of the law in Ukraine very fast. But some of them will be a point of uh, a lot of contentions, especially the ones that will uh, affect the um, Ukraine's political system internally. There's, of course, going to be changes about that. Um, everything that uh, is connected to the corruption and how to implement anti-corruption policies is going to be very difficult to implement. And it will, will take a lot of time, probably years, uh, before the Ukraine will be deemed uh, as close um, to synchronizing its legislative base with European unions. Mm. Well, Kamal, if it ever happens, what will both Ukraine and the European Union gain from Ukraine's accession to the European Union? So uh, at at this point in time, of course, this uh, this yeah, gives nothing neither to Ukraine nor to EU because there is a conflict in Ukraine. But afterwards, it gives the European Union an opportunity to enlarge itself. So have uh, another country that has uh, a lot of uh, uh, population resources and natural resources. It also gets gets a country that uh, at uh, its core uh, has implemented uh, European values as its compass for this future development. So uh, it's also going to be a country that will synchronize its legislation. So it has a lot of uh, those kind of positive sides for the European Union, but there's also downsides that the country is going to be post-conflict and it's going to mm, demand a lot of resources. And that's what Ukraine is uh, hoping to get. The development money, because there's a lot of resources that the EU uh, is dedicated uh, to send to Ukraine to rebuild after the conflict is over. Mm. Uh, and it uh, hopes that it will be able to become a part of the Euro- European family and develop together with other countries of the European Union. Mm. Well, Kamal, Russia said uh, EU's decision was absolutely politicized. How do you interpret uh, Russia's words um, and how, this, how will this you know, impact uh, Russia's relations with the European Union? Well, what Russia what Russia is meaning is that right now making that decision, taking that decision, knowing that the speedy ascension of Ukraine to the European Union is not possible, uh, is a political decision aimed at uh, basically showing uh, showing Russia that Ukraine has EU's backing, mm. and that's what it means of being politicized. So we're talking about the moment right now. Um, I think it doesn't. It's not going to affect the relationship between the EU and Russia to any uh, considerable degree, um, considering that EU and Russia are already on very bad terms because of the conflict on Ukraine. So this kind of uh, political situation cannot really uh, make the uh, the relationships either worse or better. Mm. So it's not really significant. But then uh, a lot of the European Union uh, member states are actually also members of uh, NATO and including, you know, uh, Ukraine into the European Union means that EU enlargement will, you know, push uh, itself towards the door of Russia. I mean, doesn't that even matter? Until Mm. and unless the, the, the Ukraine becomes a NATO member, and until and unless Ukraine becomes actually the EU member, because, again, it, it is it is uh, an intention of the European Union to include Ukraine into the Union at some point. But it's not it's by no means a fact that the Ukraine will become a part of EU. You know, we now have a lot of examples of countries that are waiting at the door for a very long time. Turkey is being one of them, but also mm-hmm. a NATO member. So I wouldn't make say categorically that Ukraine will at some point become EU or even NATO member. 
but assuming that it just becomes an EU member, um, it's going to be excluded from the NATO security guarantees. And so it doesn't really play any kind of role in this sense when it comes to Russian doorstep. Mm. Well, then, Kamal, how does this um, start of the nego- uh, negotiations over you know, Ukraine's accession to the European Union impact the conflict on the ground between Russia and Ukraine? Because as you mentioned earlier, it sends a clear signal. Mm. Well, right now, I think it sends a message to Russia that the European Union is uh, ready to support Ukraine in the conflict. It's ready to overcome even the resistance, internal resistance, into sending the uh, aid um, and military weaponry to Ukraine. Um, it sends a signal that Russia should expect the same resistance that the European Union have shown before. Um, and all of that on the background uh, of the, um, you know, fluttering uh, a little bit of the emotion in the Western world when it comes to the continued uh, uh, war in Ukraine in terms of support. Uh, there are signs that the support might be wavering in the United States. There are signs that support maybe waving in, in the EU, and the EU wants to strengthen the message that this is not true, mm. at least from the EU side. Okay. Now, uh, reality, um, you know, kicks in uh, when we talk about, uh, you know, earlier the, the loss of thousands of legislations that needs to happen before actual, uh, you know, progress to be made on this. So, uh, in reality, how do you predict... Uh, you know, this succession process would, how long do you think it would take? And how do you see the prospect of it actually happening? Uh, I would say it's going to be years uh, mm-hmm. and years and only after the Ukraine enters a post-conflict period. So when the conflict uh, stops in Ukraine uh, or um, there is a peace, uh, somehow uh, somehow peace reached between Ukraine and Russia. Okay. So mm-hmm. only after that and years in making because um, the country is going to be affected by the post-conflict situation. And mm-hmm. that is, again, as you say, uh, an added uh, complication when it comes just to technical criteria, 2,700 plus mm-hmm. uh, legal acts that needs to be uh, adopted Thank and you. that needs to be put in, into place. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That was Kamal Makili Aliyev, affiliated researcher at Raoul Wallenberg Institute of Human Rights and Humanitarian Law in Sweden. You're listening to World Today. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Alessandro Golombievski Teixeira. I'm a professor of public policy and management at Tsinghua University in Beijing. I am a great listener of The World Today. In my opinion, The World Today is one of the best China radio programs. In The World Today, we can get the best news and analysis in what is happening now in the world. So please, come to join us. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. China has reported a number of upbeat economic indicators. The latest sign the world's second largest economy has sustained its recovery momentum in November. Last month, China's value-added industrial output increased 6.6%, beating market expectations of 5.6%. Retail sales, a gauge of consumer spending, recorded a 10.1% growth in November. Urban unemployment was 5%, the same as previous months. So what do all these say about China's economy? What's the signal sent by the annual Central Economic Work Conference? And what is being achieved for China since the country's reform and opening up 45 years ago? For more, my colleague Zhao Yang spoke with Yao Shujie, Chang Kong Professor of Economics from Chongqing University. So, Professor Yao, so first, how do you interpret the latest economic figure? We do have the figures about the GDP, the China's economy, in the first three quarters, which is a 5.2% increase. And there are signs of improvement in November, for example, with the industrial output and retail sales rising. And at the same time, we do see the investment in property went down. So how do you describe the state of China's economy now? The state of Chinese economy showed the resilience and also the dynamism of economic growth. You know, given the size of China's economy so far is over 100 trillion, uh, the mean to have 5.2 percent in the three quarter is quite amazing. Particularly after the three years of the you know very strong disruption by the COVID-19 pandemic, China have recovered in you know steadily in 
different aspect. Although we see the, the housing sector uh, in a downturn mode, but it doesn't actually uh, fundamentally jeopardize the Chinese economy growth. Uh, it should be um, a period of adjustment. And luckily, I think the manufacturing services and export, uh, all these uh, you know, areas are not seriously affected by the housing downturn. So this demonstrated the fairly strong resilience of the Chinese economy at the macro level as well as the sectoral level. Mm. And I, I can expect that once the housing sector started to pick up, let's say, next year or the year later, the Chinese economy would have a full recovery again. Retail sales had a over 10% growth last month. So what do you think are the main factors contributing to it? And do you think the stimulus of its consumption is a key part of policy for next year? I think most importantly is the confidence of the consumers. Uh, because of the, unimpo- the unemployment rate going down, it does indicate that even the job market is still very difficult for some people. But most people actually have a job and income which is the fundamental condition for consumption. And this concept of uh, two-digit growth actually is very strong compared to the previous month. So um, it, it, it gained uh, the momentum of consumption. The government is also uh, play, playing a quite significant role in stimulating uh, the consumer expenditure. For example, like maintaining market stability by giving some sort of liquidity to the small and medium-sized enterprises, and supporting the very low income, particularly the poor in the countryside. So all the, uh, you know, all the efforts as well as the recovery of the economy uh, sustain this kind of two-digit growth, which is a very important part of Chinese economy dynamism. Mm. And if you look at the challenges, for example, property market is one of them, also jobs or unemployment. So from this year's Central Economic Work Conference, what kind of policy direction do you see to help those sectors or to deal with those sectors? Yeah, the, the Central Economic Conference give a very strong signal. First of all, uh, China have the confidence, confidence and the ability to sustain this rather you know, steady economic growth. And the council policy is basically through the so-called financial uh, policy, fiscal policy, and monetary policy to give sufficient liquidity in the market and also to have flexible uh, fiscal policy for the, uh, all sectors, particularly the small uh, and medium-sized enterprise sector, the private sector. They were going to have a confidence in making investments. Uh, not only in the in, in the manufacturing sector, in agriculture and services, but also to to uh, you know to stabilize the investment in the housing market as well, and mm. some sort of counter cyclical policy, and also even cross period uh, you know policy ahead will be adopted if necessary. What does it mean? Is that if the economy is facing a downturn, uh, the the government fiscal and financial policy you know, try to give confidence to the market so that uh, the, the negative impact of the silico uh, impact will be, uh, you know, mitigated. And even the cross period, uh, the, you know, stimulating policy, such as, the, you know, subsidy to the private sector as well as to the consumer to boost kinds of spending in, in the emerging consumer market. For example, like the new energy vehicle cars and housing you know, house appliances, electronic appliances, furniture, and so on. Mm. And, um, you know, tourism industry, transportation, uh, you know, infrastructure investment, if necessary, I think the government will draw forward some of the major projects to uh, boost employment and to boost the economy, uh, you know, fundamentals. Mm. So you mentioned the EV industry. We are seeing the high-tech industries were bright spots in this year's recovery. And this year's economic work conference also emphasized that, you know, promoting the self-reliance and strengthening in the country's science and technology development. So why is this strategy so high up in the priorities this time? Well, China is now the largest manufacturer and also the largest exporter of manufacturing goods in the world. And we, we used to be large because we produce uh, lots of uh, commodity uh, export to the outside world. Nowadays, because China is moving upward from the 
middle income to a high income economy. And in the future, we aim to become an advanced economy. And to be an advanced economy, you cannot just rely on the low-value manufacturing goods for export. We have to, you know, to climb the technological chain. So each unit of output would aim to create more value-added. And more, more to create more value-added, it needs to be supported by better uh, technology. So this is why innovation and science is so important, because they are the driving force for China's upgrading of the industrial sector. Mm. So you can see that this year, China, China will certainly become the largest exporter of uh, vehicles. For the first time to overtake Japan as the largest ex- uh, you know, vehicle export. Mm. And the, the quantity is huge. It's 5 million or more units of car flowing into the world market. And if this product going out the outside the world, they have to be reliable for the high quality and high value. And this high quality, high value have based on the technology which have been accumulating within the domestic market over the last four and a half decades. Mm. And another priority is expanding high standard opening up of the country, and that is about investment flow, capital flow, and also personnel flow. So what do you make of the measure so far? Yeah, the high quality exp- uh, you know, opening is like equivalent to the high quality of uh, manufacturing in the domestic market. We, we, China is probably the largest open economy in the world because we account for over 14% of global export, which is the largest um, in, in, you know, percentage compared to United States and Germany. We are far ahead. And um, you know, openness doesn't mean that we will sell everything we are able to sell. We, in the future, we're going to be very targeted to sell the high-end product. And also, investments uh, have to follow export and import. Uh, in order to have high-quality export, investment have to be invested in the high-quality sector. And this is, we, we say, the high-quality uh, open. Another meaning of high-quality uh, in, in opening is that uh, we are going to uh, increase the efficiency of the management of government as well as the enterprise. So by improving the efficiency of management, we'll make the investment and also the export uh, you know, more profitable and, and more efficient so that we will become the world leader in terms of cross-border investment and export in the future. So policymakers also emphasized opening the business sector to make it easier for foreign companies in China. And we know this year is the 45th anniversary of the beginning of China's reform and opening up. So how has the business environment improved since China's reform and opening up? Yeah, when China opened up in 1978, uh, China's uh, economy accounted only about 2% of the global uh, output and China have fairly little export activity because uh, uh, and the country as a whole is suffering from the shortage of foreign currency. Nowadays, you look at the picture, China has, is now accounting uh, 18% or more of the global economy, which is ninefold of the size 45 years ago. This is a fairly remarkable achievement in human being development. The other thing is that China they use the openness to stimulate domestic competition and technological progress. Initially, China import high-tech output and technology to improve the domestic market. And now, China has changed the position. It's now exporting technology and output to the outside world, become the leading, one of the most important leading nations in the world. So, um, you know, the, the, the situation has totally changed. The people's living standards have been increased by at least 100 folks, and output has been increased by at least 100 times. So this is a, a fairly different uh, situation. 45 years, actually, is now quite a long time. And this long period of non-broken high economic growth has recorded the best performance in the world economic history.
That was Yao Shujie, Chang Kang Professor of Economics from Chongqing University, speaking with my colleague Zhao Yang. After the break, China unveils rules regulating non-bank payment institutions. You're listening to World Today. We'll be right back. I am Dan Wang, Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China. The World Today is a real fun program. You will hear interesting people discussing global trend, economic event, what's happening in and outside of China. So, friends around the world, hope you can join us. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. China's State Council has unveiled rules on the regulation of non-bank payment institutions in a move to prevent financial risks. The new rules have clarified the definition of non-bank payment institutions and their establishment requirements. In order to protect the legal rights and interests of payment users, such institutions should establish effective due diligence systems and enhance risk management. According to the new rules, these non-bank payment institutions should also ensure the security of payment accounts and guard against illicit fundraising, telecom fraud, money laundering, gambling, and other criminal activities. The People's Bank of China is listed to perform supervisory duties and measures on these institutions. Now, for more, we're joined by Professor Liu Baocheng. He is director of the Center for International Business Ethics at University of International Business and Economics. Professor, thanks for joining us again. It's good to have you back on the show. Hi, Quinn. It's a pleasure. Now, Professor, um, what's defined, uh, you know, as non-bank payment institutions? Do they only include, uh, you know, things such as WeChat Pay, AliPay, etc.? Well, in a layman term. Mm. Uh, these non-bank institutions, they are neither banks nor direct sales. Mm. So they handle the money transactions uh, in between. And that includes the Financial Asset Management Corporation, sanctioned by the uh, central government, actually, to deal with the non-performing loans of those banks and those uh, financing leasing firms. And... Uh, 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 financial management firms for uh, group companies, and now uh, more popularly, those uh, auto leasing firms, the uh, money brokers, uh, and or in- intermediaries that deal with uh, uh, foreign exchange, deal with uh, sales of bonds and derivatives, and also uh, the uh, more close to those consumers, the, the consumer financing companies that deal with. Uh, Uh, consumer credits. Mm. So these are really uh, uh, very important ones that can really serve as catalyst for a modern consumption pattern. But in the meantime, they will have to be uh, put under strict oversight so that a consumer's interests can be better protected. Mm. Well, so that does include a lot of varieties in terms of you know such institutions,、uh, Professor. Why does China need such rules、uh, at this time? Well,、uh, the、uh, financial sector is experiencing a transitional changes,、mm. and uh, 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 given the new technology, given all the、uh, activities in the financial marketplace. The complexity has really quadrupled, so that、uh, they do, on one hand, need tightened oversight, so that、uh, they will not really cheat on those consumers, which really uh, uh, occurred uh, many uh, incidents of that nature. And uh, uh, on the other,、uh, they also need to conform with the regulations set forth by the、uh, chief regulators. Um, but on the other hand, they also need to be uh, supported uh, for healthy operation, so that uh, the uh, consumers can really benefit and、uh, competition can be、uh, unfolded on a equal level playing fields. So、uh, this is really a critically needed one, and uh, the uh, Chinese regulators have really streamlined. Uh, a number of、uh, regulations on a piecemeal basis. Now,、uh, now uh, it's really an integrated 
one that is there to address. Uh, mm. The new developments in this financial field. Indeed. Now, Professor, how much are the new rules are really related to the recently established Central Financial Commission, headed by Premier Li Qiang? Well, as a matter of fact, we also have、uh, we have two、uh, commissions in this nature.、Mm. Uh, uh, the one is the uh, Central uh, Finance. A committee, and also we also have the Central、uh, Finance Work Committee,、mm. uh, which addresses、uh, number one the party discipline, and uh, uh, also the capacity building in the selection and training of、uh, senior officials uh, in uh, the financial sector, and、uh, more importantly, they are there to、uh, make major resolutions over financial reform and. Pointing to the right directions that all、uh, financial ex-、uh, sectors will have to follow, and they also are there to ensure、uh, there has to be a more transparent and clean dealings、uh, within the financial sector、uh, across the board. So that really helps to stabilize the、uh, financial management, and through a better coordination and. Uh, 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 better to、uh, cater to the directions set forth by the、uh, central government,、mm. uh, for example, by pushing more of the uh, money, to,、uh, money support to the high-quality development to cater to the acute social and economic development needs, and particularly now to the real economy, and and in the meantime to prevent risk. So these are really the important functions that they、uh, they are. Are really、uh, related with the, also the non-bank financial sector.、Mm. Well, you already mentioned, you know, some of the contents of this decree that was signed by Premier Li Qiang. But,、uh, you know, among all these are、uh, terms and also regulations, rules. What strikes you、uh, the most, Professor? Well, I think you know, as a consumer that uh, uh, is there to get more and more involved in the. Online payments,、uh, with the、uh, even cryptocurrency, etc., and so it does give the consumers the right confidence、mm. uh, because a number of frauds and even the uh, uh, criminal behaviors have uh, uh, developed. So that、uh, that really spooks a lot of consumers, and also to、uh, ensure the consumers'、uh, privacy are being protected and also their money. Are being used、uh, in a secured fashion, and so this is really、uh, very impressive, and this is the right thing to do.、Mm. Well,、uh, one thing that I'm interested in, Professor, is that the new rules divide functions of these institutions into two main categories. One is deposit accounts operation, and the other is payment transactions.、Uh, professor, can you help us understand, you know, the considerations uh, of uh, such um, division, you know, behind,、uh, I mean, by the government? Well, with the.、Uh Deepened development of、uh, the digital te-、uh, technology. There's a whole variety of、uh, payment methods. Previously, we defined、uh, three categories in terms of the internet payment, bank cards, and uh, uh, the prepayment uh, services.、Mm-hmm. Now it's streamlined into、uh, two categories, <clears throat> merely、uh, depending on the、uh, whether it's a prepayment or whether it's a Transactional settlement.、Mm. So this、uh, is there to avoid the complications in those、uh, the payment,、uh, the method, and also the、uh, payment channels. And so this、uh, gives a more transparent、uh, the oversight over uh, the uh, cl- uh, classification and also over the management of those monies. So, for them, for example, for the prepaid money、mm. and how that's going to be used, and、uh, how that's、uh, going to be used to the、uh, not only legitimately but also to serve better of the consumer interest, and for the、uh, transactions to ensure there's no fraudulent behavior,、mm. and、uh, there to provide the、uh, again the、uh, the right type of uh, the uh, privacy to the consumers, and so this is really there to. Uh, ensure that、uh, 
the financial sector will grow on a healthy uh, and also the secured way mm. to uh, uh, support the Chinese economic development. Mm. Well, it'll be interesting to see, you know, the implementation of these rules. But uh, thank you, Professor. That was Professor Liu Baocheng, Director of the Center for International Business Ethics at University of International Business and Economics. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Einar Tangen, a political and economic analyst and senior fellow at the independent Taiher Institute. World Today is news without the hype and business commentary that is informed and up to date, presenting the facts and asking incisive questions. So join us if you are someone who needs to know what is happening in China as it is happening. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. The coalition around the ruling Serbian Progressive Party has claimed a sweeping victory in Serbia's parliamentary elections over the weekend. The governing party won 127 out of 250 seats. President Alexander Vucic says it is an absolute victory that makes him very happy. What is more important for the future of Serbia after such clear, unambiguous and convincing victory is that we will have to change ourselves, that we will have to much more than before remove arrogant people who don't want to talk to people, to show people that we have heard their voices. He added that Serbia will stay on the path to European Union accession while defending its territorial integrity in Kosovo. Now, for more, we're joined by Professor Tsui Hongjian with the Academy of Regional and Global Governors at Beijing Foreign Studies University. Thank you, Professor Tsui. Uh, it's good to have you back on the show. Hi. Now, Professor, what do the results of this snap election tell us about Serbia's politics at the moment? As we know, uh, this year, indeed, Serbia uh, suffered some you know, uh, political uh, instability because of some uh, shopping, uh, you know, incidents mm-hmm. happened in the country. And also in, at that time, uh, there were some, uh, you know, uh, op- opposing uh, parties try to uh, call for, uh, you know, a new election and also maybe a new government. And to shield uh, a lot of, uh, you know, unsatisfaction and, uh, you know, complaints from uh, society towards the uh, government. And of course, especially the ruling party and uh, uh, its president, Mr. Wutichi. But of course, I think this, uh, the result of this uh, election showed that uh, still uh, the uh, support from the society to the ruling party to the uh, president uh, himself is uh, still uh, strong. And also, I think that uh, it also showcased that uh, uh, for most of uh, ordinary uh, people in Serbia, they still believe that uh, this government and also this party uh, could be, uh, you know, the best choice for them. Mm-hmm. So I think that uh, once this uh, uh, election has been uh, uh, proved, uh, no problem. And I think it will give another uh, uh, period for more political stability and also perhaps some, uh, you know, upgrading upgrading of the. Uh, other factors in Serbia. Mm. Well, Professor, the Serbian Progressive Party ran the election surrounding the slogan of, quote-unquote, Serbia must not stop. I mean, what domestic policies does the slogan entail? What are the main uh, policy mandates by the party? As we know, before this uh, election, indeed, uh, within uh, Serbia, especially between the different uh, political forces, they do have a big uh, I mean, uh, debates and also arguments about what's, what could be the direction for uh, Serbia. And uh, Serbia should maybe stop for uh, some new direction or some other, I mean, discussion. Mm-hmm. I think this uh, uh, slogan from this uh, ruling party, uh, I think it shows that uh, uh, still uh, the, the, the party and also its leaders believe that uh, the direction is no problem. So they should go forward. I think that uh, for the domestic policies, uh, now I think the biggest challenge for Serbia is still the economic development and also some other 
uh, I mean, uh, social uh, affairs. Uh, I think that, uh, of course, the uh, uh, one of the biggest uh, uh, complaints from op- opposition uh, parties is about the how about corruption or how about some other mm. political issue. So I think now, uh, for this regard, indeed, uh, the Serbia will focus on development or some other economic and social affairs, not some other political affairs. Mm. Uh, as you already mentioned, Professor, uh, the opposition party in Serbia, you know, accused uh, of the ruling party of a fraud, uh, election fraud. I mean, uh, what's your what's your observation on this issue? I think so far, uh, mm. if we look at this uh, election, uh, indeed, uh, I think the election in the show itself uh, reflects the uh, major, uh, I mean, public opinion about this. Uh, uh, ruling party and the government. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, you know, yes, there there has been some problem uh, for uh, uh, for the government and even for ruling party. But now I think that uh, the election itself shows a, a major uh, public opinion that uh, once uh, Serbia could, uh, you know, achieve some more development, certainly there will be some more solution for any kind of, uh, uh, you know, challenges for any kind of uh, uh, issues or mm-hmm. problems concerned by average people. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, as already reported, uh, Professor, after the win, um, Vucic said Serbia will stay on the path to European Union accession while defending its uh, territorial integrity. Uh, I mean, what does that tell us about his approach to deal with Serbia-EU relations? The relations between Serbia and the EU always a uh, very big issue, not only related to the uh, foreign policy and also the domestic, domestic uh, politics. As we know, uh, now, roughly, uh, the big disagreement between the, uh, you know, the ruling party and the opposition is the, a little bit of different attitude towards the uh, past to be part of the European Union. Mm-hmm. It, it looks like uh, uh, the and his uh, party try to insist the uh, uh, approach uh, to become the member of the European Union uh, by uh, insisting uh, its stance on some, uh, uh, you know, territory and uh, sovereignty issue uh, in Kosovo and some other uh, regions. But for the opposition party, they try to be maybe more uh, eager to be part of the European Union and even uh, in the price of uh, uh, giving up some sovereignty in Kosovo and some other parts of the country. Mm. So I think that uh, uh, this uh, uh, commitment uh, by uh, Mr. Buzici showed that uh, certainly uh, it will he will insist that, uh, you know the uh, current policy mm. and to uh, you know put some more uh, precondition uh, on Kosovo and on its attitude to Kosovo and not to. So, NATO will be so easily giving in to any pressure from European Union or from the Kosovo. Mm. One more question, Professor. Um, China and Serbia have been close partners. So, how do you see the development of this relationship moving forward? The relations between Serbia and China, as we know, uh, has been uh, good uh, as possible, especially in China. Serbia has been regarded as a trusted worst friend mm. in Europe. Even uh, chi- uh, people in China, they called uh, Serbia as the iron friend in Europe. Mm-hmm. I think it shows the uh, you know, value and the importance of these relations. Certainly, uh, this uh, uh, result of the uh, election shows that uh, for relations between Serbia and China, it will, uh, have been, it will be in a new stage for long stability and also more cooperation. As we know now, not only on the uh, government-to-government and also this uh, diplomatic relations, the relations between China and uh, Serbia uh, is um, as strong as possible, and also both the countries uh, get uh, so much benefit from their cooperation in trade mm. and economic and investment. Uh, recent days, uh, the China and the Serbia signed the MOU on the uh, uh, you know the clearing uh, settlement arrangement of RMB mm, in uh, Serbia, I mm-hmm. think it's a showcase that both 
countries will try to promote relations as time going by. Mm. Thank you. Appreciate your time and insight. That was Professor Cui Hongjian with the Academy of Regional and Global Governance at Beijing Foreign Studies University. This is World Today. We'll be right back. Welcome. I'm Ilaf Elard, economics professor and member of the Data Science and AI Center at New York University, Shanghai. On the World Today program, you can find in-depth and impartial insight, as well as critical commentary on key trends in the Chinese economy, financial technology, business, and blockchain. To prepare for the world tomorrow, join me on World Today. Welcome back to the show. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. A recent U.S. government report shows that the number of homeless people in the country has increased by 12 percent to a record high. U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development said about 653,000 people were homeless across the country in January 2023, the highest since the survey began in 2007. The report said African Americans account for 13 percent of the U.S. population, but make up 37 percent of the total homelessness. Homelessness among veterans rose about 7 percent between 2022 and 2023 counts. Soaring rent costs, the opioid crisis, a decline in coronavirus pandemic assistance are among the major factors behind the homelessness crisis in the United States. For more, we're joined by Edward Lehman. He is legal affairs commentator and managing director of Lehman Lee and Xu Law Firm. Thank you, Dr. Lehman, for joining us again. Yeah, great to be here. Now, Dr. Lehman,、uh, what's your first reaction to this report? You know, the, my first reaction certainly is that it's it's now it's really no surprise. I mean, when President Xi Jinping was recently in San Francisco. There was all sorts of、uh, hullabaloo and discussion and noise about how、uh, you know the、mm-hmm. uh, mayor of San Francisco and the governor Gavin Newsom of the state of California had to spend time to clean up the city of、uh, of San Francisco so that we would put on a brave face and a good face for President Xi Jinping to see our、uh, city of San Francisco. You know, the city of San Francisco actually has an application, an app. Which、uh, where you identify where there's human feces, so that someone can come and actually clean up that human feces, and, and that human feces comes from largely from homeless people.、Mm-hmm. So the the problem with homelessness has skyrocketed over the last few decades. A lot of it mirrors、um, you know issues that have to do with mental health. That there's a lot of、uh, people that are not that were at one point in time were institutionalized、uh, or were seeking were under、uh, the care of Medical treatment,、mm-hmm. and then those folks uh, don't uh, don't get that medical treatment, and then they're out on the streets.、Um, you know, the, the, there's a whole bunch of reasons why this is happening. But like I said, I mean, it's never been so such a big、uh, burden and such a big、um, and well known thing as it as it is now in the United States.、Mm-hmm. It's frankly alarming.、Mm-hmm. Um- Dr. Lehman, how do you evaluate the rising living, inclu- including renting costs, in the U.S. during the past few years? I mean, how does it contribute to the worsening homelessness crisis in the country? Yeah, I mean, I, there's no doubt. I mean,、mm. the, the rental increases has、uh, jumped dramatically,、um, but that's just one of the you know one of the many issues that that you know have confronted homelessness. So certainly. That is a factor that there, there's been an increase, and certainly when you talk about minimum wage, we have a minimum wage in the United States, and it、right. depends on where、uh, where you live in the United States, whether you you know、um, what what that minimum wage might be. But、um, you know, some in some places like Seattle, Washington, it's higher than it is in other places like、uh, like in Indianapolis, Indiana. But to be able to, if you one meets the you know minimum wage, works forty hours a week. That's a very good point. I mean, can they even earn enough to、uh, rent a place、mm-hmm. in order to live and then be able to survive beyond、uh, the, the minimum wage? And so that becomes problematic. But I think that in the homelessness problem, that's just one of the factors that factors into it. I think, and, and then some people take two or three jobs in order to be able to,、um, you know, to, to meet the minimum wages、uh, and, and the minimum rent payments. So. 
Uh, it's extremely difficult. But even in rural areas, it's not just New York City or Seattle or Los Angeles or San Francisco where the rental prices are high in, mm. in rural areas as well. They're also inordinately high. And part of that has to do with the real estate taxes. Okay, so, and I know this is very difficult to explain, but, you know, in China, generally, there aren't real estate taxes on uh, for homes. With people, they own their home, but they have to pay a certain amount of money. A friend of mine in Chicago, he says, hey, listen, I own my own home, own it 100%, but I have to pay $70,000 a year mm-hmm. in real estate taxes to pay for uh, fire and police and homeless and whatever the heck it is, um, which is a local problem. So it's very difficult for folks to, to meet uh, that real estate uh, taxes are high and therefore rental prices have to equally be as high because these uh, costs keep skyrocketing. Mm. Well, it certainly looks like it's a struggle for a lot of people. Um now, Professor, we have a minute and a half before we wrap up the conversation. But uh, how is the opioid crisis in the country related to the homeless uh, homelessness um, in the country? You know, the outlook is there's a lot of steam that's gone in the whistle. They spent a lot of time, energy, and effort in order to try to solve this homeless problem. Mm. And there's a lot of administrators and there's a lot of people that are doing it. But I don't see that they're moving the dial on a very realistic standpoint. Because there's there's this clash between business owners, for example, who are trying to conduct business. Then you've got homeless people that are residing actually on the sidewalks in front of these businesses. And then you've got you know mental health issues, like I said, where, where many of these issues don't have to do with, with the amount of money uh, that you're throwing at it, but it has to do with medical care for people to get them off the streets and get, it, get them to seek treatment. I don't see the situation getting to be much better, certainly under this administration. It's not only a federal issue, but it's a city issue. It's a state issue. And this calls for some kind of harmony to work together. And we certainly don't have that right now in the United States. It's very logjammed uh, and, and very polarized. And unfortunately, the people who wind up suffering are the homeless people themselves, of course. And not only that, we've also got this immigration uh, issue with regards to uh, folks that are coming across the border illegally. They're now sending them up to cities all over the place, and then they remain homeless uh, and then become the responsibility of the city or the state in which they're residing. So I I don't Mm -hmm. think things are going to get better. I think they're actually going to get worse before they get better. And I don't think that they have an organized plan to do it, unfortunately. And I think most people are in agreement with with me. I don't don't see that... uh, there's something clear and there's some leader that can help to make this thing go away. Mm. Well, um, all in all, we uh, thank you for your time and also your insights on this issue. That was Dr. Edward Lehman, legal affairs commentator and managing director of Lehman Lee and Xu Law Firm. That's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. For further discussions, you can follow us on the X platform at CGTN Radio. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Thank you for staying with us. Bye for now.